Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, February 16th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon resigns. An investigation claims Israeli hackers meddled in over 30 global elections. Ukraine is said to be reinforcing its troop numbers in Bakhmut. Mike Pence confirms he'll challenge a special counsel subpoena. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi visits China. Human Rights Watch condemns UK and US actions on the Chagos Islands. The US says the three unidentified objects recently shot down were likely benign. The House GOP launches a probe into the origins of COVID. The White House says Tesla will open its EV charging network to rivals. And a reversible male contraceptive pill shows promise in mice. In our top story, Scotland's Sturgeon plans to resign. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Sky News, iNews, ITV News, Guardian, and Independent. Nicola Sturgeon has announced that she is stepping down as Scotland's first minister and the Scottish National Party's leader after more than eight years, with plans to remain in office until her successor is elected. Sturgeon made her announcement at a press conference in her official residence of Butte House, Edinburgh. She called the role of the first minister the very best job in the world, yet acknowledged that in her head and her heart, now was the right time to resign for, quote, me and my party and for the country. Sturgeon will leave office as the longest-serving and first female first minister since the creation of the Scottish Parliament, and having seen repeated SNP victories at Scottish, UK, and local levels. The SNP is scheduled to meet next month to discuss treating the next election as a de facto independence referendum. The SNP leader claimed that she no longer felt she could give the role what it deserved and had a duty to step back. Sturgeon claimed she would certainly continue as a member of the Scottish Parliament until the next Holyrood election, due in 2026. Sturgeon had recently experienced a series of political setbacks, including controversies over her strategy on independence and trans prisoners. Despite this, Sturgeon stated that her decision was not in response to the latest pressures. Possible candidates to become the new SNP leader and First Minister include Sturgeon's deputy, John Swinney, the current Health and Social Care Secretary, Humza Yousaf, as well as the former Secretary for Finance and Economy, Kate Forbes. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Let's begin our narratives with Narrative A from The Spectator. With a never-ending list of failures, it's no wonder Sturgeon has resigned. Not only did the SNP leader make numerous mistakes concerning her gender reforms, independence referendums, and relationships with local councils, but she also left Scotland with a broken healthcare system and economic pain that can no longer be blamed on Westminster. To top it off, Scottish police are probing a potential misuse of SNP funding by her husband. New leadership is long overdue. Narrative B comes from New Statesman. Sturgeon certainly wasn't without faults. However, she had natural strengths as a leader and was an incredibly human and straightforward social democrat that sought to improve the disadvantaged while standing up against Westminster. Qualities she continued to embody through her decision to resign once it became increasingly clear that independence wouldn't happen under her leadership. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 5% chance that Scotland will leave the UK before the year 2025. 
Well, hopefully the uh, Highland Games won't be interrupted by all of this regime change. I mean, I would hate to see the caber toss go away. That's Is that the big log that they flip the, end over end? The big log, and they've got the hammer throw and the stone yeah. put. And as a child of Scotland, you know, many, many generations ago, that that's uh, that you know that that hits close to my heart. I'm sure it does. We lost Rowdy Roddy Piper. We can't lose the games. <laughs> I can hear the bagpipes now. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. A report claims an Israeli hacking team meddled in over 30 elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Business and Human Rights Resource Center, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, Jerusalem Post, and The Times of Israel. An investigation undertaken by a consortium of journalists and released by The Guardian on Wednesday alleged that a team of Israeli contractors claimed to have manipulated more than 30 elections around the globe using hacking, sabotage, and automated disinformation via social media. The report said that the team is led by Tal Hanan, a 50-year-old former Israeli special forces operative who now works privately using the pseudonym George and has been operating for more than two decades. Hanan said that he denies any wrongdoing. The group's tactics reportedly included hacking, forging blackmail material, spreading disinformation, planting false intelligence, physically disrupting elections, and deploying targeted social media campaigns. Only some of these allegations were verified by the journalists involved in the report. Hanan and his team were also reported to have acquired unauthorized access to Telegram and Gmail accounts of high-level officials and deployed botnet social media campaigns. The evidence in the report suggests that the group meddled in at least two presidential elections. The report referenced a software used by the team known as Advanced Impact Media Solutions, which controls over 30,000 fake social media profiles, all of which can be used to spread disinformation or propaganda at extraordinary speed. Israel has already come under diplomatic pressure regarding its growing cyber espionage industry, with several companies, most notably the NSO Group, accused of helping authoritarian governments crack down on human rights and target political rivals. Scott, thank you for the facts of that interesting story. A couple of spins have emerged. The first one is Narrative A coming from Middle East Eye. This report is a grave indictment of Israel's extremely concerning cyber espionage industry. Considering that Hanan used an Israeli company connected to Israel's Ministry of Defense in its disinformation operations, there's no doubt that there was some level of collusion between him and elements of the Israeli government. The Israeli government must immediately stop companies from meddling in global politics. And Narrative B comes from the Times of Israel. Though there are plenty of critics of companies and groups like Hanan's and NSO, this sort of work has been used to successfully catch countless criminals and terrorists. In light of allegations of misuse, Israel has worked to mitigate this by cutting off access to users who abuse this technology. Tel Aviv has safeguards in place. Now, maybe it's just me as a longtime contractor and freelance worker, but what stuck out to me is that these guys, this nefarious team, were Israeli contractors. So they didn't even get health care for doing this job. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You're right. No benefits. With a name like George. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The tragedy in Ukraine continues as we look at day 357 as the head of Wagner claims that Ukraine is reinforcing troop numbers in Bakhmut. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Ukraine's Kapravda, MSN, Ukraine Forum, and Al Jazeera. Ukraine is sending hundreds of new troops to the Donetsk city of Bakhmut every day in what has been the fiercest battle of the war so far. 
Yegevny Prigozhin, head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner, said via Telegram on Tuesday. He says Bakhmut will not be taken tomorrow because there is very strong resistance. In all directions, the enemy is becoming more active and bringing in more reserves, he continued, claiming that between 300 and 500 troops were being deployed and artillery fire intensifying every day. The account was seemingly confirmed by Volodymyr Nazarenko, a Ukrainian deputy commander who told Ukrainian radio, quote, I would like to assure you that the Ukrainian forces are not going to surrender the city. It comes after Western reports earlier in the week suggested Ukrainian forces may be preparing a withdrawal from Bakhmut. Meanwhile, Russia's defense ministry claimed to have broken through Ukrainian defenses in the neighboring Luhansk region on Wednesday. A statement from the office of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said, Ukrainian forces repelled Russian attacks in Luhansk and made no mention of a retreat. However, it said, quote, the situation in the region remains difficult. Neither account could be independently confirmed. Ukrainian officials reported that one civilian was killed and three more were injured in Donetsk over the past day, while two civilians were also injured in the region of Kherson. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy and Kharkiv, without reports of civilian injuries at this stage. Meanwhile, pro-Russia officials reported that five civilians were injured in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk for the same time period. Elsewhere, Ukraine's foreign ministry on Wednesday accused Russia of obstructing the Black Sea Grain Initiative by deliberately slowing down inspections and erecting other barriers to prevent ships from leaving ports. A day earlier, Sergei Vershinin, Russia's deputy foreign minister, said Russia may withdraw from the agreement as it is still failing to see any progress on its side of the deal, such as lifting of sanctions on Russian food and fertilizer exports. Further afield, researchers from the Yale School of Public Health's Humanitarian Research Lab on Wednesday accused Russia of holding at least 6,000 Ukrainian children in political re-education camps across Russia and Crimea. The research was backed and funded by the U.S. State Department. All right, thanks for that rundown of the facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Newsweek. Russia's inability to take the Donetsk city of Bakhmut is symbolic in the wider deficiencies that will prevent it from conducting further successful offenses in Ukraine. The pro-Russian narrative is coming from TASS. Russian forces are continuing to make advances in Donetsk. It's only a matter of time before Moscow's forces take the city of Bakhmut and the remainder of the Donetsk region. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there is a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024 according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Pence confirms he'll challenge the special counsel subpoena. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS News, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and The New York Post. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence confirmed on Wednesday that he plans to challenge a recent subpoena from the Justice Department special counsel Jack Smith, investigating former President Donald Trump's post-2020 election activities. Following a Minnesota event on parental rights, Pence said that he honored his constitutional duty on January 6, 2021, and that fighting the grand jury subpoena is needed to protect the separation of powers. Pence, who was president of the Senate as part of his VP duties, argued he's protected by the Constitution's speech or debate clause, which shields members of Congress from testifying about legislative acts. This move could start a months-long legal battle. Pence is the latest and the highest-ranking official in Trump's administration to be subpoenaed in the investigation into alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. 
Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers are also reportedly planning to fight the subpoena based on the administration's executive privilege. Thank you for the facts of that story, Scott. Several spins have emerged, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from Slate. If Pence challenges the subpoena, he'll fall flat on his face. According to case law, speech or debate protections extend only to legislative acts. And Pence unequivocally stated his Senate role was ministerial and largely ceremonial. He's just trying to stay in Trump's good graces by appearing to fight the investigation. And the Republican narrative comes from the New York Sun. There's no doubt that Pence is right to take this path to fight the DOJ subpoena as the vice president indeed constitutionally belongs to the legislative branch. By dismissing Trump's alleged pressure campaign to overturn the election, Pence made it clear that he was an officer of the Senate in his own right, not an executive official subordinated to the president. Breitbart gives us a pro-Trump narrative for this story. Smith is a politically motivated prosecutor who is running an illegitimate investigation and has botched prosecutions in the past, both domestically and overseas. There's no way anyone, let alone the former vice president, should tell Smith anything. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 54% chance that Pence will be a candidate for U.S. president in the 2024 elections. You going to run this year, Eric? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be a write-in, I think. Oh, good. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to spend any campaign dollars at all. I'm just going to write in. Hey, well, you know, hey, best of luck to you. Yeah, thank you. Iranian President Raisi visits China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Middle East Monitor, Al Jazeera, France 24, Iran International, Associated Press, and NBC. Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi on Tuesday kicked off a three-day trip to China, marking the first state visit by an Iranian leader to China in 20 years. The visit is reportedly a move to boost bilateral political and economic ties. According to Chinese state television, President Xi Jinping pledged to support Iran in protecting its national sovereignty and denounced an alleged policy of unilateralism and harassment against Iran amid rising tensions with the U.S. Xi also emphasized the traditionally close ties between the two countries and urged a swift resolution to the negotiations regarding Iran's nuclear program. He also criticized alleged external attempts to interfere in Iran's internal affairs and destabilize the country. During Raisi's visit, China, which is Iran's largest trading partner, voiced its commitment to expand trade, agricultural, industrial, and infrastructure ties with Iran and import more high-value Iranian agricultural goods. According to the PRC government, 20 bilateral cooperation agreements were inked, which follows the signing of a 25-year strategic agreement between Iran and China in 2021 on cooperation in oil, industrial, and other sectors. Meanwhile, the U.S. Department of State on Tuesday called on Beijing to exert its influence in convincing Tehran to abandon its alleged destabilizing activities, stating that reducing potential threats in the region is in the interest of both the U.S. and China. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. The fact that the two ancient civilizations of Iran and China are deepening their political and economic ties is good news for the entire region. The fact that both face hegemonic oppression from Washington will in no way diminish their will to cooperate. In fact, it was the overcoming of U.S. interference and sabotage that triggered many recent achievements in Sino-Iranian cooperation. Raisi's trip is a clear sign that a new multipolar order will continue to take shape. Financial Times gives us an anti-China narrative for this story. Tehran and Beijing's official statements cannot hide the fact that, in reality, their mutual ties still have issues. 
Tehran is upset that it has yet to reap the expected economic benefits from its pivot to China. Meanwhile, Beijing recently snubbed Tehran by tilting closer to one of its chief adversaries, Saudi Arabia. China and Iran's growing tensions with Washington are simply insufficient as a basis for putting their economic and political relations on a solid footing. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they say there's a 47% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before the year 2030. And what could go wrong there? It's going to be, it'll be like a Tupperware party. Okay. Everyone gets one. Maybe we'll all get a little free nuke. That'll be fun. Our next story, Human Rights Watch condemns the UK and US action on the Chagos Islands. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, U.S. News and World Report, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and The Associated Press. Human Rights Watch, or HRW, on Wednesday accused Britain and the U.S. of committing crimes against humanity by forcing the people of the Chagos Islands in the Indian Ocean to leave their homes five decades ago to make way for a U.S. Navy base. The condemnation was made in a 106-page report calling for compensation and an apology to the Chagosians. The report says that Britain allowed the U.S. to build a military base on Diego Garcia, the largest inhabited island in the Chagos archipelago, which was considered a British colony in the 1960s, resulting in the forced removal of the island's inhabitants. Britain then reportedly separated the Chagos archipelago from the island of Marudius, which was negotiating its independence at the time, and removed the remaining Chagosians from the islands. The UK Foreign Office denied the accusation of crimes against humanity, saying it respected HRW's work, but categorically rejected its characterization of events. The UN has ruled three times that the UK and US have no sovereignty over the islands and should cede them to Marudius. However, London and Washington have yet to follow those rulings. Thank you for the facts, Scott. The first spin is an establishment-critical narrative coming from HRW. The UK and US governments conspired in the 1960s to forcibly remove the island's inhabitants in a clear crime against humanity. In addition to the forced displacement, the UK has since prevented Chagashians from returning to their homes. Reparations are the first and minimum step towards righting these wrongs. And a pro-establishment narrative comes from Stars and Stripes. Diego Garcia is strategically important to the US and UK for regional security. There have been talks over its future between Marudius, the U.S., and U.K., and the official lease on the island expires in 2036. Abandoning it earlier would constitute an absolute red line for British and U.S. security interests, as China would fill any vacuum left by a withdrawal. How's the lease on your island? I want to get my security deposit back. That's the yeah. key. You know, well, it, had a, it had a no pets policy, right? Yeah. <laughs> in our next story, the U.S. suspects three unidentified objects were benign. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, RT, BBC News, NBC, and New York Times. White House officials said on Tuesday that the three unidentified objects shot down by U.S. fighter jets since Friday may turn out to be balloons connected to benign commercial or research efforts. Following the Chinese high-altitude balloon incident earlier this month, three mysterious aerial devices were shot down by U.S. fighter jets over Michigan, Alaska, and northern Canada over the past several days. Officials from the U.S. and Canada have not yet located or recovered any wreckage from the three downed objects, but the White House said it has found no evidence linking the three objects to China's or any other country's spy program. The Chinese government has denied that what it calls its weather monitoring balloon shot down off the coast of South Carolina was being used for espionage, 
accusing the U.S. of a trigger-happy overreaction. U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said that the three other objects had not been recovered yet, as they were in very difficult terrain, adding that they will eventually get the debris, but it's going to take some time to recover those. U.S. officials have reviewed videos and sensor readings collected by the pilots who observed the objects before their destruction, but their exact nature, where they are from, and their purpose will not be confirmed until authorities have examined the debris. U.S. officials also believe the devices are of earthly origin. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from Newsweek. Up until this month, Americans were led to believe that their homeland was safe from any and all threats, both foreign and domestic. Though the only object known to have been for espionage purposes was the first Chinese balloon, the others were necessarily shot down as they were potential flight hazards. The U.S. government must continue to monitor its airspace thoroughly to ensure the safety of the skies. Lou Rockwell gives us an establishment critical narrative for this story. Beginning with vague talk of UFOs in 2017, the U.S. government has been ramping up fear tactics to call for more militarism. Without even providing a clear explanation of what they are, many politicians are already using these incidents to call for sanctions against China and increased military spending. While you can't count on the U.S. government to explain what's floating in the air, you can always count on it to instill fear in the American people to ultimately fund the military-industrial complex. I mean, I think it's naive to think that these balloons are any better at surveilling us than, you know, information stuff on social media or computers or satellites can. I mean, cares about the balloon kind of, It just seems so antiquated to me, yeah. Yeah. If anything, I'd be worried that the balloon is just a distraction from whatever else is happening. That's that's how I think. Definitely a decoy. You know, and nothing in this story was of interest to me except for the last sentence. (laughs) Yeah. I think that the uh, facts doth protest, protest too much. Don't worry. Certainly just of earthly origin. Don't worry about that. Talk about Barry in the lead. (laughs) Yeah. No one was really talking about that until they said it. You know, like. Exactly. (laughs) The House GOP launches its probe into the origins of COVID. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, The Hill, NBC, and the Associated Press. Republicans on the U.S. House Oversight Committee and Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic fulfilling a promise they made before taking the majority in the 2022 midterm elections, have begun an investigation into the origins of COVID. Subcommittee Chairman Representative Brad Wenstrup, Republican of Ohio, said the probe must establish where and how COVID emerged so Congress can predict, prepare, or prevent it from happening again. The committees have requested documents and testimony from Biden administration officials such as Dr. Anthony Fauci, and Health Secretary Xavier Becerra. Fauci, who left the federal government in December 2022, was director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, for nearly 40 years, also serving as Biden's top medical advisor beginning in January 2021. The 12-member subcommittee's task is to uncover the origins of the pandemic, what role, if any, federal funding played, and whether gain-of-function research research that enhances a virus's ability to infect, to predict pandemics and develop cures, played a part in COVID's emergence and spread. In addition to Fauci, the committee is seeking testimony from EcoHealth Alliance President Peter Daszak and reached out to 40 other officials. Phone records, calendars, and other correspondence between NIAID and the National Institutes of Health have also been requested. As the origins of the virus have become highly politicized, the lawmakers are also hoping to receive a classified briefing from intelligence and law enforcement agencies. 
Two opposing spins have emerged from this story, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Fauci and others who received requests to testify before the committees have avoided facing the music long enough. They successfully ignored a December 13, 2022 request, but now that Republicans are in charge, it's time to follow up on previous reports of tax dollars funding the Wuhan lab and the possibility that COVID was either an accidental lab leak or even a PRC bioweapon. If those asked to speak have information to the contrary, they are welcome to and should present it to Congress. Cross that with this Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Any legitimate investigation into the origins of and response to the COVID pandemic has to start with a committee of astute inquisitors. What the GOP has provided, however, is a committee full of conspiracy theorists and unserious radicals that are unlikely to conduct this probe without politicizing it. If those investigating are the same people pushing dangerous medical disinformation, the committee's findings will end up as just another polarizing kangaroo court for one side of the aisle. I've told you about the kangaroo that got loose in my hometown one time. Is your hometown (laughs) Sydney, Australia? No, it's in the heart of New England. We (laughs) had a nature preserve in town. My high school mascot was the kangaroos. We had a nature preserve in town that happened to have a wallaby, and they used to bring it to pep rallies and stuff, and it would jump around, people would cheer. It was cool. One day, this wallaby escaped the uh, the nature preserve and and headed into town. The story goes, and this was in the, the newspaper at the time, that a guy was at the bank drive through and the and the kangaroo jumped up and punched him while he was waiting for his money. <laughs> That's what you call a penalty for premature withdrawal. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Tesla plans to open EV charging network to rivals in a federal program. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, TechCrunch, Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and New York Post. As part of its $7.5 billion program to build 500,000 electric vehicle or EV chargers by 2030, the White House announced Wednesday that Tesla agreed to make at least 7,500 chargers available to all EVs by the end of 2024. To qualify for program funding, participating manufacturers must make and assemble the chargers in the U.S., and all manufacturing processes for any iron or steel charger enclosures or housing must also occur domestically. The White House program, approved under the tax credit funding of the 2021 Inflation Reduction Act, will also require that at least 55% of all charger manufacturing components be made in the U.S. by July 2024. As the White House wants all chargers to be accessible to all EV types, Tesla which already has a national network of 17,700 fast chargers, will have to ensure compatibility with the federally-backed Combined Charging System, or CCS. By the end of next year, Tesla will make 3,500 new and existing superchargers available along highway corridors, with the rest being destination chargers at locations such as hotels and restaurants in urban and rural locations. This comes as the U.S. Treasury Department recently made more EVs eligible for tax credits of up to $7,500 under new vehicle classification definitions. Companies such as EVgo, Pilot, and Hertz have also pledged to expand their charging networks in the next two years. Thanks for those shocking facts, Eric. We have a Republican narrative from Express. After spending so much time attacking Elon Musk and his businesses, particularly regarding the new Twitter CEO setting the Hunter Biden story free, President Biden has now begged his billionaire nemesis to help him fulfill his administration's green energy infrastructure plans. It seems that the man who actually builds things for America is winning the war of words with Mr. Build Back Better. Raw Story brings us a Democratic narrative. 
As the Biden administration and the American people look for ways to go green, their efforts have been hindered for years due to a lack of charging adapters to connect to Tesla's chargers. In order to benefit from federal funding, however, Elon Musk has finally agreed, albeit begrudgingly, to produce universal EV chargers instead of hoarding his technology for Tesla buyers only. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 1.52 million non-Tesla vehicles will be licensed with Tesla software by the year 2030. The gas station near my house dug up a whole thing and they put a bunch of the official Tesla superchargers in. I've never seen anyone use them. It's just, have it's you, just never. Have you tried it on your car? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's just see what happens. Yeah. I, well, I tried it. Uh, <laughs> Did you try it with your cell phone? I was, was going to say, yeah, yeah. I was going to say I tried to uh, give myself a, a quick charge, a yeah. quick jolt in the morning. You know, I don't think I have the right software. You must not. Our final story, a study claims that reversible male contraceptive pills show promise in mice. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wired, New Scientist, WION, BBC News, and Sky News. A new study has reportedly produced promising results in mice for a male contraceptive drug that temporarily and rapidly reduces fertility. The treatment reportedly works by inactivating soluble adenylylcyolase, or SAC an enzyme critical to enabling sperm to propel themselves forward. Researchers tested the treatment in the form of a compound titled TDI-11861 on 52 mice. No pregnancies resulted from subsequent mating with female mice in contrast to a control group, which saw almost one-third of mates impregnated. Subsequent observations showed the drug was fully effective in limiting sperm mobility for around two hours after being administered. Full fertility had returned to the mice within 24 hours. The contraceptive did not cause any adverse side effects during the trials. Extensive research has already occurred into the development of a male contraceptive pill to no avail, but senior co-authors of the study and pharmacology professors, Dr. Jockin Buck and Dr. Lonnie Levin, have praised this study as a game-changer. Other scientists are also conducting ongoing research into potential male contraceptives, that work by blocking a protein on the surface of the sperm to reduce fertility. Thank you for the fact, Scott. The first spin is a left narrative coming from New York Times. This study is a hugely positive step after the overturning of Roe v. Wade has made the prevention of unplanned pregnancies more critical than ever. Men are involved in 100% of unplanned pregnancies, yet face the consequences of them far less frequently than women. In a climate increasingly hostile towards abortion, even to female autonomy at all, Males must take greater responsibility for the consequences of their sexual activity. And the right narrative comes from the Federalist. Channeling such time, funding, and effort into research for the development of a male contraceptive pill is a waste. Even if this new study could develop a drug that isn't plagued by the myriad of side effects seen in previous tests, low demand among men, as well as the likelihood of a much higher rate of forgetfulness and poor administration, make it unlikely to be very effective. The media needs to stop reporting on research into male contraception as if it would be some kind of pharmacological holy grail. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, February 16th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you would like more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric. Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.